okay, so I'm not above making fun of somebody when they're not in the room. So this is what's about to happen. So I'm at this party, right? And, and nothing brings life to a party that having a chemist there, but not just a chemist, but a chemist that wants to bring science experiments into the party. You know, it's Hello Kitty liquid nitrogen, right? So I get there and the kids are playing and Charlie's got this large vat uh, of liquid nitrogen. And, and he even sent that to me in a text that they were gonna make liquid nitrogen ice cream. And I, oh, I thought he's just being funny because he's always kind of dry humor, you know, tongue in cheek. And no, he meant it. He's gonna make liquid nitrogen ice cream. And I know nothing about those things, especially chemistry. I was like, well, this is gonna be interesting. Well, it didn't just, it didn't just you know, it wasn't just ice cream that he was making. So he, with, with seven-year-olds gathered around, he pours out the liquid nitrogen and trying to fight them off because, of course, they want to touch it. Like, it will harm you, but they don't care. It's like, we want to touch this stuff. He's putting bananas in it, and then he's hammering nails into a piece of wood using the banana. I grab the banana, and I'm trying to squeeze the thing, and I'm strong as an ox, and I can't move the thing, Right? You know, and so, you know, my wife calls me Hercules, but that's between us, and I can't, I can't budge the thing. And it's, it's, it's so funny. He's putting balloons in it. Now, I have to say this. He stops for a minute, and he gathers the kids around because this is a chemist with a captive audience, and that doesn't happen very often. And so, so these people gather around him, and he's, well, do you all know what's, uh, what's comprised in the air? Do you know what all these things? And Wesley starts spouting off all these statistics about, well, there's nitrogen and there's oxygen and all these things. And well, do you know what we breathe out? And Wesley's like carbon dioxide. And then Wesley and I had a talk about being a know-it-all when we went home. And, you know, uh, we really did. I was like, humility, brother. You know, I mean, you know things, and that's awesome. Be, be humble. Boast in other people, not in yourself. Is it wrong to say I'm smart, Daddy? Eh, no and yes. Depends on the context, because he said that. How do you know that? And Wesley said, because I'm smart. Okay, you're a jerk too, but that's okay. Uh, I didn't say that to him. So, so fun times at this party, experimenting with, with, with liquid nitrogen. You know, we were trying to find bugs to put in there, but there, you know, Charlie just doesn't. Y'all need to stock up on the bugs in the, in the backyard. Uh, but it was, a, it was a lot of fun. And what, what that did for me, it got to me thinking, if there was a warning label on the liquid nitrogen vat, what would it say? You know, I mean, keep miles away from small children, probably, but it didn't say that. It, uh, it, there was no, that I saw no warning label. And that, that kind of catapulted me into this private journey of reading warning labels. And I was thinking in terms of the sermon today, because Jesus has started giving us these warnings, right? Specifically a warning against false prophets, against false doctrine. So I'm thinking, hey, let me, let me just look at some warning labels, because that's where my mind is. And... Uh, you know, and, 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 and so I come across a few things, and it's nothing out of the ordinary. Let's say a Tide Pod, or in my case, a Cascade Pod. And you think, why are we talking about this? Evidently, there needs to be warnings addressed with our culture and Tide Pods and other harmful things that will kill you. So keep out of reach of children, keep off skin, and keep out of eyes. Now, the Tide Pod or Cascade Pod says nothing about the dangers of ingesting it. They might change that now. Windex. Keep out of reach of children and pets. Don't let your pets grab the Windex and start spraying everything, right? So keep out of reach of children and pets. But the warning, interestingly, was on the inside. Like, you could only read it once the liquid actually came down. It's like, what good is this for me? You know, I'm trying to turn the bottle a little bit. Like, what's it saying there? I had to think of Comet. The only warning on the Comet label was in Spanish. I thought, where's Clayton when you need him, right? No clue, right? So, or Lysandra, right? So, uh, anyway, so it's, it's these, these warning labels, right? So that's Windex, that's Comet. I have this little canister called Easy Off, which is a heavy-duty uh, oven cleaner, and I liked this one. I thought they were really helpful, kept me safe, you know, because I was, I was chomping at the bit to spray my face with it. So this is what it said. Danger, keep out of reach of children, will burn skin and eyes, harmful if swallowed, do not ingest. I was like, there it is. All of these should say that, but only one of them so far says do not ingest. I like this. Avoid contact with skin. Avoid contact with eyes. Avoid contact with mucous membrane. I don't even know what that is, but I thought that's fantastic. (laughs) They're covering it all. You know, avoid contact with mucous membrane and clothing. 
And that, folks, is called due diligence, right? Heavy duty does not want to be sued, right? Or, or easy off does not want to be sued for, uh, for a misuse of their product. But why do we even put warning labels on things? Because for some reason... For some reason, some people find these kind of things attractive. They're drawn to them or drawn to the misuse. That's why we have to have warning labels. It's a child's default mode to say, I'm going to explore what this is. Now, it might be a one-year-old who likes to grab things that they don't need to grab, and they just don't know, but curiosity just leads them. Or it might be a 15-year-old that, that takes the Tide Pod challenge. You never know. So there's warnings there for a reason. There's a reason that these warning labels are there. It's because we're drawn to that. And we have a natural propensity towards exploration into the things that are bad for us. And there's no difference in our sin nature. There's a reality that Jesus is addressing here. And he's like, even those who are followers of Christ, because of your fallen state, because you have, because you have fallen, because in Adam all have sinned, because of this natural propensity and proclivity towards sin, you will be drawn to these things. You will be drawn to false doctrine. You will be drawn to things that tickle your ears. It will have an appeal to you. Sin is appealing, is it not? False doctrine is appealing. Why is it that in the pastorals so much attention is given to warning against these false teachings? Jesus is telling, or Paul is writing to these these, uh, pastors, he's saying, shut it down. He's saying, stop make sure that none of that is infiltrating the church. I mean, there's warning after warning after warning. I just challenge you to read the pastorals and see how much attention is given to the exhortation and to the admonishment of cutting false doctrine off at the pass. I mean, it's a, it's a major theme in the New Testament because at the end of the day, it's Christ as the groom lovingly protecting his bride. I mean, what husband in this room would not go to whatever lengths to make sure his bride is safe. Whether they're on the mission field and he's explaining to her or they're learning the dangers of the culture and learning things to look out for, what husband would not say, be very careful, sweetheart. Take, I'll, I'll go with you. Don't go out by yourself. You know, this is, this is the love and the affections that Christ has for the church. And here is just another example of him showing his love and his affections. If I had to say, uh, if I had to give a thesis for this, I think there's a couple of things to unpack here. One we'll, we'll say for next week uh, as we teach through the next small section. But what I'm gonna highlight today is seeing a husband's love for his bride, specifically Christ's love for the church, in the sense that he's giving these warnings. And so, I think this, I think with the inauguration of the local church on the horizon, that's our context, right? Local church is about to be born here. People have been, belonged to Jesus for a long time, and, and not, not to Jesus, but they've, they've belonged to God, followers of God, but now you have Christ, the incarnation of Jesus. You have a local church that's about to be established. So the timing is right that Jesus would address these issues. It's not the issue uh, the issue is not primarily, okay, what needs to be on our radar is simply that the local church is susceptible to false doctrine. That's absolutely true. But why is Jesus dealing with this? Because attack on truth has been a reality since the dawn of time. Because the first words out of the serpent's mouth was, did God really say? And we know because God is truth, what he says is truth so anything that's a challenge to what God says is a challenge to truth. And those were the, that's, that's how the enemy is introduced to us, is as someone who attacks truth. And that's what the enemy does. He's the deceiver, right? He takes what is truth and he manipulates, he perverts it, and he attacks that. He challenges truth. And that's the first thing we see of the enemy. So this is something that's happened for all time. It's not a new thing. It's just with the establishment of the church, now the truth that is attacked, they will try to infiltrate the church. These false prophets, i.e. these false doctrines, will seep into the church, and they will wreak havoc. Because here's something that you need to carry as a thought throughout this. False doctrine that gets into the church is never benign. Never. It's never benign. A little leaven does what? It leavens the whole lump. False doctrine leads to false practice. False doctrine leads us to sin. You can see time and time again in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, where the practices of the church are sinful, whether it's, whether it's showing partiality, whether it's 
according to the Galatians, whether it's circumcision when they didn't have to and thinking it was something that it actually wasn't because of their false doctrine, whether it's uh, like, like, like the Corinthians and their sexual sin and whatever other sins they had going, it was all born out of a false doctrine. It was all born out of a false understanding of what truth was. So truth has always been attacked, so this is nothing new. So Jesus is very gracious now that the church is about to be established and he's saying, I'm giving you a very stern warning. And see this as a loving perspective from a bride to his, to his uh, from, a, from a husband to his bride, Christ to his church. So warnings are nothing new. Let me just give you a few examples. A few examples here. Well, the, the, the scripture says, beware, first of all, it says, beware of the false prophets. So I think it's important to kind of establish some terms, as I mentioned this throughout, to know what definition I'm operating under. A false prophet, or a prophet in general, is anyone that speaks on behalf of someone else. Right Now you've got the major and the minor prophets throughout the Bible. You got Nathan who approached David as a prophet and said, listen, uh, uh, you're the man, David. You know, you're the guy that the story of the, of the rich man who had the ewe lamb and, and took the poor man's lamb when that's all he had. You're that man, David. You're the one who's culpable. You know, you're the one that should die for this. So you've got a prophet who's speaking for the Lord. Jeremiah goes, uh, you, well, Jeremiah, you have, you have Noah, uh, I'm sorry, Jonah, who goes to Nineveh. He's speaking on behalf of God. God has said, I've got a message for you to give to them. A prophet is always speaking on behalf of someone else. As a matter of fact, the first usage or the first term we hear of prophet in the Bible is Aaron, who was a prophet for Moses, because Moses was giving God all these excuses as to why he was not the one that needed to go to Pharaoh, right? He's like, I can't do this. But I, can't, I can't speak very clearly. You know, he was, he was chicken. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't handle the heat, right? I'm not saying I could, but that was his scenario. So he says, okay, well, I'll send, we'll, we'll use Aaron. And Aaron will be your prophet. So he's representing Moses as a prophet. Jeremiah 23 16 says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. Now, these are the false prophets. They come in and they say that we speak on behalf of God, but they don't rightly represent God. They don't rightly represent his statutes, his, his truths or any or precepts or any of those. It says, they will fill you with false hope. If anyone ever says something to you and they say, on behalf of God, God has given me a word, God has spoken to me, and I think God can do that, but to you, it's, it's, it's hopelessness, it's destitute, you might want to check the spirits to see if it's a false prophet, all right? Now, it might be something that's actually from God, and, and you feel, oh, hopeless and all this, and it might be that you're not in Christ at all, and that may be why you're responding the way you are, because anything from the Lord, you know, should 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 for those who are the saints should be good because it's a product of his perfections. Jude is, is, uh, gives the same kind of warning here. The book of Jude, it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Listen to this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And these are people wishing to do the church body harm. These are false prophets who come in with a false message that are gonna pervert, that are gonna distort the message of the gospel and any other doctrine to the detriment of the church and for the work of the enemy. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago, listen to this, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Who long ago were predestined for this condemnation, who long ago were appointed as vessels of wrath for this condemnation. It's a weird way that the sovereignty of God works in the midst of all this. God is sovereignly working so that these things happen, but God is also, God is also providing warning and, and defensive strategies for the church. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. This is thousands of years ago. Remember that. <laughs> For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. 
Now, I don't mean someone who listens to, you know, a long-winded preacher, which, which I am not. Uh, they listen to them, and, and they're like, okay, I'm growing kind of weary. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time, you know, concentrating. I get that. You, we all have a certain bandwidth. I'm well aware of that. I just don't care. So, so I get that, right? Um, but this is talking about those people that are... are you know, they're looking to have their ears tickled. They're looking for something else. They're looking to cause perversion. Um, and they have a different motive in mind rather than just being tired or having just a limited bandwidth. Matthew 24, 24. False prof, uh, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So no one is off limits. You understand that? It's not, just the, the, it's not just the lost who the enemy wants to encamp around and wants to keep them deceived. It's the elect. It's those who are in Christ that he wants to deceive, that he wants to render useless in his opinion, I guess, for the kingdom of God. Think about how much of a team player a follower of Jesus is when they're not actually doing anything for the kingdom. That's, a, that's kind of score one for the enemy in a sense, right? <laughs> if I can keep them busy, if I can keep them confused, if I can keep them distracted, you know, I can't have them, but they'll actually work in my favor. So Paul's epistle to the church in Colossae was to combat a heresy called Gnosticism. I mean, it's just all through the scriptures. From beginning to end, truth has always been attacked. So I wanted to start with saying that that's why the warning is issued. The warning is issued because truth will always be, has always been attacked. And the Lord is saying, you know, truth, correct doctrine is a top shelf issue. It has to be. I mean, my people worship me in what? Spirit and truth. It, it, it really determines effective and acceptable worship. You know, you can't just have any Jesus if Jesus is the way, truth, and life. You can't just have any Jesus. You can't have a Jesus of the Mormons or a, Je- or a Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness. You can't have a Jesus of the Word of Faithers. You can't have a Jesus of these people. You have to have the biblical, historical Jesus. His teachings are correct, understanding him right, understanding who he is, fully God, Fully man, in him dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form, absolute perfection, no sin nature, you know, went to the cross, gave his life, endured the absolute, un, just, just uh, relentless wrath of God, and then conquered death by rising on, on the third day. I mean, you have to have the right Jesus because there's a lot of false Christs that people proclaim to be and that people subscribe to. So there's a serious threat. That's why we have this warning. That's why there are warning labels. When I was, when I was very young, I've shared this story before very briefly, I drank a cup of Clorox. Now, I didn't go reading the label. I was, I was little. There's a whole context of that as to how that happened. You know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm not that big of an idiot. So I just, I just sucked it down because I was really thirsty and I couldn't breathe. She, the, the, the nursery worker had to come out and stick her finger down my throat after she whooped me a couple times thinking I was just being funny. Uh, I was dying. So uh, she, 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 you know, I vomited all those things up, but I'm sure that if I picked up Clorox and I read the warning label, it might say, or it might not, or it should say, do not ingest, because I can tell you firsthand, you will choke. So there's a reason these warnings are here. And Jesus loves the church so much. He loves his bride so much that he wants to give warning so that the bride can defend herself. And this is a part of him defending her, is giving her truth, giving sound doctrine, and making sure that it's protected. Because from the beginning of time, truth has been attacked. We can talk about pantheism, which are some, as a name you probably don't know, but this is the idea that God is not personal. This may not be popular now, but it was definitely popular then. I think pantheism can be closely connected to, uh, um, to what is it called, deism, Austin deism, clock, watch, watchmaker, clockmaker God, who kind of winds us up and just goes on his own business, not personal at all. That's contradictory to the scriptures. And the thing is, that affects prayer life, it affects our hope, it affects 
all kinds of things because we're talking about how these things affect the local church. What happens when these false doctrines start to infiltrate? What happens when certain people are creeping in unnoticed and they're planting these seeds of hope and despair amongst the elect who are not even off the table for the enemy and the, and the flaming arrows that he, that he shoots out? Swoon theory. I was in a Baptist church where I heard someone teach on swoon theory. He taught that there was no real death of Christ, at least a death on the cross. Therefore, there was no real resurrection. It was all a rue. It was all fake. And this is what the Muslims actually teach. But I was in a Baptist church, and I heard this. It wasn't the pastor. It was somebody that came in to, to teach one night. This is, this is the quintessential example of guarding the doors of laboring to protect the church from false doctrine because this was in a youth setting and you have youth that are hearing this and because this is someone that supposedly has authority and some kind of knowledge, maybe some of them who are weaker in theology or lost, maybe they're buying into this. Oh, well, I always thought that Jesus did die, but it turns out that he didn't. Modalism, this is that Rather than seeing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit three in one, it says that you have God, and this is popular, by the way. Those who would say that they're evangelical Christians hold to this, some. This is the teaching that God becomes whoever he needs to be to fit a certain occasion or context. If God needs to be the Holy Spirit, he becomes the Holy Spirit, but he's not God the Father, God the Son simultaneously. If God needs to be the Son, i.e. on the cross, he's the Son, but he's not God the Father and he's not God the Holy Spirit at the same time. If he needs to be God the Father, he's God the Father, but he cannot and is not God the Spirit and God the Son while simultaneously God the Father. And this is heresy. And you better believe it affects the church. It affects, again, how we pray. It affects how we think of God. It affects so many things. It's not benign. Open theism says that God has a limited knowledge. God ordains so much to happen, but at some point, he just doesn't know what's gonna happen after that. That rips the sovereignty and the omniscience of God in half. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a damnable heresy, it challenges the omniscience of God. This leads us to the question, this leads us to question the future and God's control over it. How can I look at you and say God is in control of the future if he doesn't know what it is? How can I look at someone who's been diagnosed with cancer and say to them, hey, there's hope, there's this, there's that, when maybe God doesn't even know what's around the corner? It's, it's, it's an attack. It's a frontal assault on the very nature, on the being of God. And it cannot be in the church. And Christ loves this church enough to say, watch out for these things. Watch out for these things. And these are obvious. I think one that's also obvious is the prosperity gospel. That gets a lot of attention now, but a lot of people have bought into it. This is that God's favor towards you is demonstrated by uh, health that he provides you with, wealth that he provides you with. What this does is, is it diminishes the true gospel. It leads to hopelessness when the inevitable hard times come. They are less obvious. This, this prosperity gospel might be less obvious to some because the proponents of the prosperity gospel are using scripture, albeit out of context, and they use it in this way. They go to James 4.2, and they say, you do not have because you do not ask. Now imagine you're a brand new Christian. Imagine you're a Christian that just hasn't learned. Imagine that you're overseas and that you've just heard the gospel. You've just heard that. You're like, I, I want that. I need that. You become a Christian, right? But you don't know much of anything. Let's say these infiltrators come in and they start saying, hey, this is what the scripture says. And as a new Christian, you're to be given to the scriptures. And the scripture says you do not have because you do not ask. Therefore, if you ask, the Lord will give you. And listen to what Creflo Dollar, and I will name drop in a negative way all throughout the sermon, and I'll explain why I think it's important to do that. Creflo Dollar, he says, when you pray, speaking of James 4.2, when you pray believing that we already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. And that's his hermeneutic. They use Galatians 3.14. He redeemed us in that order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ. The prosperity gospel teaches this to be financial blessings to believers. 
And that's the litmus test of whether or not you are favored by Christ or even in Christ is if you have health and if you have wealth and prosperity. But it diminishes the gospel because the gospel says because you have Jesus, that's the litmus test of favor is that I've given you Jesus. But there are some that are less recognizable. You might say, well, if someone came in and they were pantheistic, they were saying that, uh, that, that God is, is, is he's so transcendent, he's so above and beyond that he's not personal. You would recognize that and say, yeah, I have an issue with that. Someone came in as a modalist, you might say, well, that's a problem. You know, if someone came in as a, you know, as a, as a prosperity gospel, as a docetist, as an open theist, as a, as a swoon theorist, whoever, you might see that. Like, okay, I'm grounded enough to recognize these things. But what about some that are, that are flying much lower to the ground, more likely to slip, slip through the radar? What about easy believism? I, th- I think that the warning pertains to this. Easy believism reduces salvation to an intellectual acknowledgement of God's work on the cross accompanied by verbal, a verbal appeal to be saved. And I borrowed that definition from, uh, from Christian Apologetics Research Ministries because I think they just captured it uh, much better than I could at the moment. So this concept of salvation omits the aspect of salvation that demands work, that demands denial, and taking up your own cross. It's a very passive. Now we know that, that Jesus saves. He's the active agent, we're the passive agent. The Greek word elko for pulling a sword out of a sheath or drawing a net. The word draw there is, it's a, it's, it's, we are the passive agents. There's an activity being done unto us, uh, to salvation, but easy believism says, well, then I'm good to go, which easy believism necessarily leads to licentious behavior, to uh, um, antinomianism, a lawlessness in life because, hey, <laughs> where sin may increase, grace will abound. Easy believism is dangerous. Let me, let me fly a little bit more under the radar. Emotionalism equals truth is a false doctrine that has infiltrated the church. Emotionalism equals truth. This is hyper-spiritualization. I uh, have a group of guys that I text with and I ask them for some, of their, for some of their help on this. And one of my buddies wrote this and I thought, man, that's absolutely true. I didn't even think about that. I'm, I understand emotionalism, but the, but the fact that it's relegated or it's treated as truth is huge. This would necessarily lead to everyone basing their beliefs and actions on emotion rather than biblical truth. In other words, you're having a conversation and someone comes in and they have a way with words. Although they're a charlatan, they have a way with words and they're talking and they're tapping into your emotions and you feel a response and that response is emotional and you say, well, because it has invoked emotions in me, it must be true. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Because the Bible says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It says, worship in spirit and truth. Never, ever, ever does it say, rely on your feelings. There's another one that's under the radar. The denial of God's justice. Austin Jowers shared this one with me that I thought was so helpful. He's a loving God. He would never send someone to hell. He would never pour out divine retribution on his elect. He would never cause anyone to suffer. Let me just give you one, for instance, just one among thousands. You know, we can go from, from, from flood to wherever you want to go, but let's just go to David's baby. This is one of the hardest texts to digest, but it's just right there. David's baby dies, and God, it's made clear that God, to make a point to David in his divine justice, God killed David's baby. And that's a hard pill to swallow. But there are those who will deny the justice of God. Don't you understand the implications of denying something like that? You deny the justice of God, you have to deny the doctrine of hell. You have to deny so many other things. What does that mean about Jesus on the cross? Because it was the justice of God that caused God's wrath to be poured out on Jesus. So it brings the whole atonement into question, right? It's a big problem. Churches with a watered-down view of God's justice will most likely not practice church discipline either. And then the leaven will end up leavening the whole lump. Here's a tough one. Another buddy gave me this one. Personal autonomy. You're like, what in the world is this? I had to think through and ask my friend how he would define this. And this is basically that you are your own 
authority. And maybe you're in here saying, well, I, I don't think that. You know, I don't think that I'm my own authority. You know, I, I claim that Jesus, and that's well and good, that's fine. But how many others think that they are their own authority? And this is a false doctrine that infiltrate, infiltrates the church. This causes the individual to govern themselves rather than to be governed by God and to be governed by the scriptures. And attached to this is emotionalism is truth. Because if I'm up here or if someone's up here or in any place where they're teaching and they're talking about uh, transgenderism or they're talking about the LGBTQ or they're talking about these things that are real inflammatory hot button issues and they just wanna speak the truth of scripture. Well, sometimes truth doesn't resonate so well with people. And so they have this emotional response. And because they're their own authority, because they have personal and they practice personal autonomy, they say, well, that's not true for me because I don't feel right about that. I don't feel right about that. I've had people look me in the eye and say, well, God is a loving God. I just don't feel like he would ever allow someone to be in hell. And if that's true, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Personal autonomy, this is a major issue rooted in false doctrine. It says, you, because you are gods, whether spiritually dead or alive, our lives are ruled by God. He may not be Lord and Savior of everyone, but he is God, the sovereign over everyone and over all things. Personal autonomy is the belief behind the fact that I can reject anything else because I am my own authority. I have my own truth. I am my own God. This kind of ideology is why the gender revolution is where it is today. Personal autonomy means that I can reject what sex I was given biologically because I want to be something else. This is what personal autonomy gets you. And it is a dangerous reality in the local church. One more illustration I want to give you is legalism. Legalism involves removing or abstracting the law of God from its original context. That's a definition borrowed from Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul. Uh, Sproul also said the legalist isolates the law from God who gave the law. He is not so much seeking to obey God or honor him or honor Christ as he is to obey rules that are devoid of any personal relationship. And here's some application of that. Legalism affects the church in such a way that it divides Christians on issues that shouldn't divide us. It's an issue born out of an improper hermeneutic and cheapens rather than champions the gospel. And that's what legalism does. And the upstate is full of it. Everywhere is, really. So we start to see why Jesus gives the warning. Why does he just say, beware of the false prophets? I mean, what's going on in Christ's mind? If, if he would have just expounded on that, you know, I mean, how much would he have had to say? I mean, I think some of the ramifications we see in Luke 21.8, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, claiming that I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. Don't be led astray. Corrupt doctrine inevitably leads to corrupt behavior. Admitting false prophets into the church, again, is never benign. It's never benign. It's always malignant. But the warning, albeit gracious, was not where Jesus stopped, was it? He didn't just say, beware of false prophets, and he just left it there. Now, that's gracious, and that's loving that he would even give us the warning, right? The, 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 you know, the, the, tide, the tide or cascade pod box may have said, you know, keep away from mouth and eyes, but it doesn't say this is what will happen if you ingest it, right? The Windex bottle didn't tell me what would happen if I got it on my skin or if my pet squirted me with it. It didn't say that. It didn't say what would happen. It just said, don't do it. Jesus didn't just say, don't do it. He goes further in protecting his beloved. So because of his love for his bride, he set up defensive strategies to protect her. Listen to this. So beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. This shows their intention. And this was a, a society that the main f occupation was to be a shepherd. So this is a language that they would completely understand. And they would understand what a wolf meant to a flock and what the death of these sheep by the mouth or hand of the wolf meant for, uh, meant for them economically, what it meant for a family uh, financially, what it meant culturally. 
if they started to lose all their sheep. And he says, beware of these type of people who are out to kill and to destroy. And he says, you will know them by their fruits. And then he furthers the illustration and says, listen, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or, or figs from thistles, are they? That's, that's just weird. It's like, okay, obviously they're not. You know, I don't go to a lemon tree and pick apples. It just doesn't happen, right? And so he says, here's the obvious. So every healthy tree does what? It bears good fruit. He says, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. He says, you will always know a tree by its fruit. If you see apples, what can you surmise? It's an apple tree. He's making it so very simple for us. So here's defensive strategy one that he has set up. He's placed elders. He's placed overseers in the church. And a part of their primary responsibility, mine and Austin's primary responsibility, well, part of, is to guard the sheep. Is to guard the sheep. You say, well, are you sure you're not on some power trip and kind of taking taking some liberties. Absolutely not. And let me share with you what this says. First Timothy, one of the pastorals, first Timothy one, three through seven says this, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, this is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul is speaking to an elder saying, you need to guard the sheep, guard the doors of the church so that certain ones aren't creeping in unnoticed and infiltrating with false doctrine. Titus, Paul's writing to Titus, another pastoral. He says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, this is qualification, right, of the elder, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And listen to this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why do we call out people like Joyce Meyer, like Joel Osteen, Is it because we're on a witch hunt? No, I pray that God saves them. But Jesus put a premium on protecting the church. And Jesus had something very specific and damning to say about those who would come in and who would spread false doctrine. Luke writes in Acts chapter 20, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Sometimes wolves get in and they lie dormant and they're sneaky. And then eventually it's like a bad seed that was implanted inside the congregation that no one even sees. And then one day they rise up and you have to deal with it. But guess what? If you're tossed and thrown by the false wind of doctrines like you don't believe in the justice of God, you won't do discipline on this person. You won't protect the church. The elders won't protect the church if they don't believe in right doctrine. So God has given elders or overseers as a loving gesture to his bride. I would love if I'm on the mission field and I'm in a dangerous place to hire a bunch of bodyguards to pretty much put a whooping on anybody that even looks at my wife wrong or anywhere for that matter. And I'm not saying God has made elders the, you know, the, the, the bodyguards of the church, but in a sense, it is. Or we are. So here's defensive strategy number two. One is God has given us elders. God has given uh, overseers the same. Defensive strategy number two is the saints protect themselves. So just to be clear, Now, you can't walk away from here and say, okay, I've got my protection for the week. I've had my elder kind of walk through this text and talk about kind of what's going on. All right, I'm going to tuck that away, and I'm okay. It doesn't alleviate you of the responsibility of furthering your study and equipping yourselves. Because here's what it says in Acts 17.1. Now, these Jews were noble 
were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if things were so. These Jews, he's not specifically or exclusively talking about elders. He's talking about those who have come to faith in Christ. He says, they're examining the scriptures for themselves. In 1 John, when he says, test the spirits, he's talking about the congregation. Test the spirits. If you're a Christian, if you're claiming to be in Christ and you're hearing anything, even from your elder, test the spirits. Examine the word of God with what they're saying to see if it's true. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on guard so that you may not be carried away by what? The error of the lawlessness and fall from your secure position. That's a warning to the saints, not just to the elders. It's a warning to the saints to be of sound mind, to be of sound doctrine, and to pursue these things on their own. And then he says, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of God. We're all to be theologians. We're all to be given to the study of God because it shapes our worldview and it defends against false doctrine. You've heard, you've heard Austin talk about membership up here. And you notice that the O'Neills have been here for a while. And we're just now talking about membership with them, what that means. Haven Ridge's policy is to take things kind of slow. It's not that we don't want people covenanting together with us. It's a protective measure. It's a, defen- a defensive strategy. Too many times I've been a part of the come walking down the aisle and see a person I've never seen before and I just ask them the question, well, have you trusted Christ? Yes, I trust Christ. Well, let's vote you in as a member. I don't think that's protecting the church at all, at all. How easy is it to infiltrate the church if if that's the door that they have to get through? How easy is that? I think it should be a bit harder or there should be more evidence for someone being regenerate. So not only has the church been given defensive strategies to combat false doctrine, but also the ability to recognize it. He says, he says you will recognize them by their fruits. You'll see their life. You'll hear their message. If you understand true, right doctrine, you'll understand. It's a beautiful thing when you think about a bank teller or someone who handles a lot of money. I've been informed that, that people who handle money at banks, they don't study counterfeit money, but they handle so much money that's true money that when counterfeit goes through their hands, they can tell it. Maybe there's a different weight. There's a different look. There's some kind of discrepancy that they can more easily identify than any one of us who don't handle money in, that, in, in those quantities. And the same is true for us if we're given to sound doctrine. When something false comes, over the, come, comes across the way, we can identify it more easily because we understand what is true doctrine. And Jesus says, look, you'll know them by their fruits. As a good husband who labors to provide safety for his bride, he teaches us how to recognize the dangers. Let me try to bring this in for a close here. Let me just walk through some stuff with you. He helps us to identify these. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. But rotten fruit isn't always recognized from the outside, is it? Not always. Sometimes you have to get in and explore and see that it's actually bad on the inside. And you can only test these spirits when you're learned or when you've learned how to recognize them. And this is what, this is what first, first John tells us, four, one through six, I won't read it all, but it says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. You know, spirits, uh, the spirit of error speaks a certain way about Jesus. They mostly distort the person of Christ. The spirit of error speaks in half-truths. You know, uh, you'll get this much, and that seems right, but there's some kind of perversion. There's some twist there that maybe won't register on your radar. And that's false doctrine and false indoctrination that's coming through. Notice that the, 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 from where the Spirit speaks in this text, in 1 John, it says that they speak and the world listens. They're speaking from the world. If the world 
If those outside of Christ are tuning in and saying, this is good, it's great reason to question. Let me just give you some examples and see if anything goes off on your radar. Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers, and we're all born as siblings in heaven to them both. Red flags, any? Jesus, his sacrifice was not able to cleanse us from all of our sins. Any, 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 any stuff there? Jesus is fully God, fully man. Gotcha. That one's right. <laughs> the birth, here's one. The birth of the Savior was as natural as are the births of our children. It was the result of a natural action. He partook of flesh and blood, was begotten of his father as we were of our fathers. Does that sound right to you? These are all direct, direct quotes, from, uh, quotes from Mormon doctrine, a doctrine called Gospels Through the Ages, a doctrine called the Journal of Discourses. What about this? If I said to you, since God has made us in his image and after his likeness, Christians are in fact little gods. Does that sound okay to you? That's a direct quote from a, from a Christian. What about this? You don't have God living in you. You are God. Hopefully there's a little distaste. Maybe you're choking down the stuff that's coming up in your throat. What about this? Jesus had to atone for sins in hell because the cross was not sufficient enough. Direct quotes from Word of Faith. Cults are often more recognizable, but there are other false prophets and false organizations who are not so easy to identify. There's a lot of people maybe in this room who like to watch TBN. Let me just say a few things. The primary proponents of the prosperity gospel, Kenneth Copeland, Frederick Price, Robert Tilton, Benny Hinn, Charles Caps. You see all this on the Trinity Broadcast Network started by Paul and Jan Crouch and Jim and Tammy Faye Baker in 1973. I knew a lot of loving little old ladies that love TBN that love Paul and Jan Crouch. It's the world's largest television network. Think about it. The people want to be told that they will be healed. It's an ear-tickling agency, and it's making millions. TBN preys on the lost and the theologically weak. TBN poster children are people like Rod Parsley, Creflo Dollar, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, Kenneth Hagen Jr., and Joseph Prince. Today's leading prosperity gospel figures are Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, T.D. Jakes, and Joyce Meyer. The prosperity gospel has been repackaged and made to be more palatable for the public. Let me see if this sets well with you. Jesus stopped being the son of God. He could have helped himself up until the point where he said, I commend my spirit into your hands. At that point, he couldn't do nothing for himself anymore. He had become sin. He was no longer the son of God, but he was sin. Jesus was born again. The minute that blood sacrifice was accepted, Jesus was the first human that was ever born again. The host of hell were literally on Jesus and were laughing. They were having the biggest party they had ever had. They had my Jesus in the floor, and they were standing on his back, jumping up and down, and he became sin. Don't you think that God was pacing, wanting to put a stop that was going on? These are all direct, direct quotes. So I can't say that today. Direct quotes from Joyce Meyer. And so many women love Joyce Meyer. And her Botox. They love it. And this is what she believes. This is the heart of the Word of Faith movement. And you listen to Joyce Meyer, and she might say a lot of things that are compelling and are even true. But she distorts and perverts the truth, sometimes just blatantly, and sometimes it's unnoticed. Because there are certain ones who are creeping in unnoticed. Some may take issue with calling out Joyce Meyer and all the others making millions on manipulating the desperate, the lost, the marginalized, and the theological weak. But Jesus is issuing the warning against these very people. So if I'm going to stand on the side, I'm going to stand on the side of Christ, and I'm going to issue the warning and say, don't listen to these false prophets. Because their way is damnation 
Their way is hopelessness. Their way is false. They've created a false Christ. They have a false God and a false gospel. And I give you warning against them. Recognize that fruit of falsehood is not exclusive to the context of doctrine. Although this is what Jesus is saying, watch out for the false teachings. They say they represent God and his truth, but they're ravaging wolves. But fruits are also identified in practice. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna pick up at that point tomorrow, I'm gonna make a closing statement. We're gonna pick up there next week because the whole next section really deals with fruit as well. And then it deals with the justice of God, which I'll dive into. So we'll talk about the doctrine of hell and we'll talk about some of those things and what it is to have fruits in your life. So we'll get into all that. So I'm not shorting the scriptures here, but I wanna spend time on that next week rather than spending more time than I already have this morning. But let me say this. John Calvin made this comment. He said, nothing is more difficult than to counterfeit virtue. Nothing is more difficult than to counterfeit virtue. Is it really that hard to tell if someone's a genuine believer? I would say no, not over time. Not over time it's not. Perhaps at first it might be, but in the end, without the Holy Spirit, any attempt to counterfeit godly virtue will fail. It will fail. It will fail. My boss always says when someone says they've come to Christ, he says, we'll see. <laughs> and at first I'm like, what's well, harsh? But I get it. Time will tell. Time will tell. We can accessorize Jesus from one Sunday to the next and speak the language and play the part, but time will tell because you can't counterfeit godly virtue forever. So I pray that the fruits that you produce this week will tell the story of what the gospel has done in your life. It will tell the story that Jesus died in your place, that he substituted himself for you as the only possible way to God, as the only way to a right relationship and fellowship with him, as the only possible way to hope and to joy and to peace. And that your life will bespeak that kind of transformation, exclusively contingent on the work of Jesus and nothing else. And that God might be pleased. Let's pray together.